Okay, hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Things We Find Interesting, a brand new podcast where we discuss, as what it says on the tins, topics that we ourselves on the podcast find interesting and that we hope that you will too. If you're enjoying the podcast so far, please give us a like, give us a subscribe and give us a share, importantly. Um, when we're at this early stage, sharing with your friends and your families can be super helpful for helping us grow our really small audience into a slightly larger one. So we've got a slightly different topic today, another of the interview series, and we're branching off in a slightly different direction, and we're looking into the world of the of, of medicine and doctors. So I'm joined today for the first time on the pod uh, by Dan and Tom. Say hello, guys. Hello. Hello, Andy. <laughs> I'm Tom. Um, this is your I first am... time on the pod, isn't it? It is first time on a podcast, yeah, all very new to me. Um I'll, I'll let Dan introduce himself, um, uh, and then I guess we can tell you a bit about, or give you a bit of our background. Hi, I'm Dan, and uh, ni- nice to be here, Andy. Thanks for having us. That's right. Yeah, guys, it's always a bit nervous coming on for the first time. Everyone takes a few minutes to kind of find their rhythm, um, but honestly, it, w- it will be good fun. So what are we talking for you guys about today? Um, so both Dan and Tom are uh, doctors um, uh, relatively early on in their careers um, in, 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 the, in the UK, in the NHS, what we're going to discuss about is some of the traits that make up a good doctor so for a layman like me who's got no kind of medical background and for you guys in the audience probably listening what is it that you think of when you imagine a doctor and we're going to compare that to the reality you know and and i'm going to guess there's going to be some some quite interesting differences um you know it's it's an interesting career that the public's got probably quite a, a a strong perception of um but actually i can imagine that there are as i say going to be some really big differences are we going to look at house md you know the, the kind of grumpy older um what do you call him a consultant a grumpy older consultant solving all these 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 tough cases and being a bit of a bastard along the way are we talking about dr nick riviera off the simpsons that's the hi everybody hi dr nick that guy um so we're going to go into that today um which is hopefully interesting for you guys i think the what might be best for everybody listening is if either of you guys could give us a little bit of a steer over the kind of career path of how do you become a doctor because i think that's going to frame a lot of our discussion today so um i'll, I'll happily take that on as it's a nice and easy question um so it's, it's quite a long journey to become a doctor and it starts off with medical school which is quite competitive as as people might imagine that is usually minimum of five years. Um, it sometimes can be six years if you do an extra degree in kind of research science. Um, and then after that, once you graduate, you become a, a junior doctor. Um, and a junior doctor is a, quite a broad term and it can encompass from just five years all the way up to potentially 10, even longer. And what that actually breaks down to is once you qualify, you become something we call a foundation doctor in your year one, otherwise known as F1. And that's one year of training. And then you move on to foundation year, year two. And that once again known as F2. And then at F2, normally what happens in the first two years, you kind of have to decide what kind of specialty you want to go into. And you make that application process relatively early on um, in probably early, early F2. Um, and after, after you've made that decision, you apply for that specialty. And if you get in, then you go on to that training 
pathway and that can last really varied depending on what kind of specialty you go into so it can last anything between three years or 10 plus years and during that time people can take breaks and an extra time out and at the end of that when you complete your specialty training pathway you become a consultant in your in your relative chosen field um, and oh, so that, that's you can the be a consultant after three years of that specialization is it in, in in some of the shorter the shorter pathways is, is that right yeah absolutely so i i'm a gp myself um i have recently qualified and i did three years of gp training after my foundation years one and two um, i took a bit of a gap halfway through as well um but yeah so after now i'm officially uh, a consultant or uh, in my field which is general practice so i'm a general practitioner uh, so uh, Dan's in in a slightly yeah the, the more um, probably got a more general understanding of that as, as a GP. Tom, you're you're in a bit more of a specialist part of of medicine. I am. So uh, while Dan's gone down uh, a general generalist route, which I guess is a specialist in itself, is a, a specialty in itself. Um, I have decided to stay within hospital medicine, um, and I specialise in anaesthetics. So uh, I'm an anaesthetic trainee and uh, it's, uh, it's quite a big specialty, which surprises a lot of people. So uh, it's the biggest hospital specialty. So uh, about 40% of doctors that work in hospitals are actually anaesthetists. Uh, and that's quite surprising to a lot of people because we, we very much work behind the scenes and while Dan is out there on the front lines seeing, you know, 50, 60 patients a day. As uh, an anaesthetist, I, I, I don't see as many people, um, but I am the doctor who takes care of you just before, uh, during, and then just after uh, an operation that you have. Uh, so we are the doctors that, that put people to sleep. We are experts in pain, uh, and we have a yeah kind of a big role in that rag. perioperative journey. You guys are the chloroform brag guys. Yeah, that's how that's how I'm imagining it. A rag with chloroform on it. Oh, okay. it is a, it is a type of anaesthetic. Yeah, it's not it one really that we use anymore. Oh, so you, will you get into trouble if you use that today? I probably would if I brought that out in front of one, one of my consultants. <laughs> I think they'd, they'd have a few words. So, Tom, you know, I was talking about there's the different pathways. Sort of at one end, we got three years, and at ten, um, at the other end, we got ten years to kind of uh, hit that consultancy level or hit that kind of finalizing level. Mm. Are you guys more in that sort of ten year category? Are you with a slightly more sort of niche part of of medicine? Anesthetics is either a seven or eight year training program. Uh, depending on slightly kind of which route you take in it's uh that's if you just like absolutely power through you have no career breaks you stay full time uh and and full time as a doctor is i think a lot of hours and kind of more hours than what most people would consider a full time job so you know a full time job might be considered 40 hours uh, you know, every doctor is going to be working over that 40 hours. 
Yeah, because you've both mentioned career breaks there. So is that? do you think because we've got this, you guys working essentially quite um, long hours and, and I can imagine quite taxing hours as well, do you see a lot of your colleagues taking little little sabbaticals and things like that as a, as a way to kind of get uh, relieve the pressure? Yeah, absolutely. And I think we're seeing it more and more now because the I think partly through demand, partly through necessity. So it's a it's a hard job. It's stressful, um, and there's lots of different ways to go about it. So some some people take years or six months out. Um, others, a lot of my friends now have decided to drop down to eighty percent. So that's you know a hundred percent is your full working rotor. Whereas eighty percent, obviously, you're doing eighty percent of that rotor. And and although that will prolong how long it takes for you to do the whole training it makes life a lot more tolerable. Um, and bear in mind, I think Tom's already mentioned about the hours, you know, 80% in actual hours on a hospital rotation, in a hospital job, probably that is still 40 plus hours. So and it's- And you're getting tax on the money at the end of your, uh, you know, at the top end of your tax bracket anyway, aren't you at that stage anyway, so. <laughs> I suppose financially, it's not even like a, as, as much of a hit as it as it sounds. Yeah, I don't think it's t- too much of a hit once you take into account of tax. But I think generally, it's more actually necessary for people nowadays just to avoid burnout and to stay in the profession. That's really interesting. They, they sit, um, and I think I hopefully we'll come on to that later when we discuss some of the traits of people, um, you know, because we're getting a lot of it sounds like there's a, a fair degree of robustness that perhaps people wouldn't expect from from that career. This may be needed. And you guys might have some anecdotes about that. I'm curious about in the first place, though, we, you did you did mention those guys who take 10 years to sort of fully finish their pathway or finish the first part of their pathway. What what um, specialisms is that in? Who are the guys at the, the real long end of it? Well, I think gen- generally, for example, if you want to be a surgeon, that that, that takes quite a long time. Um, I think n- normally those those training years, I think if you're as quick as possible, is about eight years. But commonly, actually, that even though eight years is the run through, the quickest way you can do it, often even when you get to the very end, sometimes they have to do an extra year as a fellowship somewhere else just to get enough things on their CV to become employable as a consultant in a location of their choosing. Um, so, so whilst I think generally the, the shortest amount, of the, sorry, generally I'll say it's about eight years is the longest time. If you run through it, practically, it usually is a bit longer anyway. And, so and you, Dan, some of those, Dan, some of those hyper specialist surgical specialties. So off the top of my head, I'm thinking kind of transplant surgery, neurosurgery uh these guys will will train up to a a consultant level but there just aren't the jobs for them and so what do they do during that time you mentioned fellowship uh sometimes they will take years out and do phd fellowship what what is that again sorry Uh, yeah a fellowship i guess is kind of a a temporary job that you do in a hospital fulfilling a consultant role but they don't want to give you a full job um okay, so like sort of temp working almost yeah you could do although people use it for a good experience as well people you know if you can't find a job in the uk you could go out to australia new zealand and do a, a fellow job out there 
Yeah, because you talked to me the other day. We were talking about something else, and you were talking about um, CVs, and which isn't some as a layman you wouldn't imagine a doctor needs a kind of you know is, is chasing after a CV because you sort of imagine they're on quite a a, a well oiled career path. Um, but that, that's really interesting, actually. That, um, that there's a degree of competitiveness about. Um, I can imagine, where, as you mentioned there, where where you want to be based is more desirable parts of the countries but also um, different specialisms. So I'd imagine of the different specialist options we've talked about, some are, are more competitive, some are, are slightly less competitive. Big time and well-oiled is certainly not the uh, a phrase I would use when it comes to, to medical applications. Um, it is a minefield. Uh, we, and in this country, we have major problems when it comes to, to training up doctors to a certain level uh, and then not having uh, the funding to kind of give them jobs in the end. Um, you've also got the specialties which are uh, undersubscribed, and so then you're left with with big gaps in in the which workforce. What would they be if if, um, if you're able to say what some of the areas that are less popular? I think psychiatry is is not popular. Um, classically, GP was less competitive to get into. Um, these things change from year to year. I wonder if GP is now becoming more popular uh, than it has been in the past, considering the amount of burnout that people go through uh, in hospital specialties and the increasing numbers of night shifts um, and weekends that people are having to do. What about the um the personality side of it? Do you, I mean you're obviously going to have to make generalizations here, but a sort of useful generalizations if you're if you're looking at do you see within your cohort of people at med school um people of certain personality types, certain interests will tend trend towards certain areas. Um, are, are there any interesting kind of observations you've had from that of of different types of people going to different areas? I think the stereotypes are there. I'm not certain how truthful they are to be honest um i think certainly within the the medical world or if you're you know if you're part of the medical world the stereotypes are you know if you're going to be in the the orthopedic surgeon so they're the bone doctors they're like the the jocks at high school as as, as it were um, orthopedic surgeons uh, as strong as an ox and twice as smart <laughs> <laughs> would they would they self would they self um, diagnose themselves with that that title as well? Would they are they quite kind of proud of their jockish uh, reputation? I think they are. <laughs> I think certainly some are. Yeah, I love working with the orthopedic surgeons though. Uh, they've got a job uh, and they're going to do it, um, and they don't mess around. They're sort of men and women of action, are they? They just, just get it, crack on with it. Literally crack, probably. <laughs> they are. They're they're. they're um it's carpentry of the human body you know there you, you you walk into an orthopedic theater um and some of the tools you see wouldn't look out of place in a um in a workshop you know there are drills there are saws uh it's a, it's a fantastic place i think you were saying to me something about like it actually requires quite a lot of strength just to sometimes manipulate the the kind of bones and muscles and stuff on on someone that they they, they need to be quite quite strong and they're known for having a firm grip <laughs> yeah i think uh they are in that kind of 
you know comes out in their jockish nature but uh in in all seriousness sometimes they do have to put a lot of force through these these bones um so you know the other week i saw uh, a guy come in with uh, a dislocated shoulder and really really painful thing to have uh, to happen to you um I think a few people had, had kind of tried to get this thing back into place, but the, uh, the kind of tendons and ligaments holding your shoulder in are, are, are pretty tight. And, you know, if, if you're in a lot of pain, you're going to be holding that shoulder tight. So uh, an orthopedic surgeon was called. Uh, he came down, he, he took his shoe off. He, he placed his the kind of ball of his foot in the, the patient's armpit uh, and kind of using a bit of leverage gave the thing a good tug uh, and it popped back into place so it's uh, it's physics in action well wow, that is not what people expect um yes yeah, so we so we've wandered a little bit off topic there um but i'll bring us a little bit back onto some of the topics we've, we've thought about before this that might be interesting um to people and and it's fascinating i think to compare what the layman the member of the general public thinks about doctors and their traits and their, their education compared to what, what it actually is. And we, we, we split it down to talk about the kind of education, the, the learning that you guys get, um, uh, the sort of skills that you guys need to be effective at your jobs, and then some of the, the maybe some of the more behaviours um, and personality traits that make someone especially good as a doctor um, and, and what you guys have as reflections of that. And, and the first one is, is education. As an outsider, it seems to me like the medical world is so huge and there's so many different different things that could go wrong with someone um, and, and, and ways to treat that. I kind of think, how, does, how do you guys possibly learn that? You know, even when you're going to five years to med school and then another, the F1, F2, and then extensive projects after that. I, I, I assume you can't learn everything, um, but I'll be fascinated to know you got, how you guys um, deal with that issue of having to learn so much information and kind of be a bit of a font of all knowledge, especially Dan as a bit of a GP where people probably expect you to know everything at the front door. Yeah, I think, I think it's, it's, it's really difficult and there is a lot to learn. And actually what, what I think we learn in med school or medical school is probably only the tip of the iceberg. So actually what we now actually need to learn and, and know as working professionals so I, I don't know if Tom feels this, but certainly my experience of medical school was it taught me the language of medicine. It taught me the words that everyone uses as a hospital or the jargon. It taught me some bare basics, particularly kind of the, the anatomy side of things. It also taught me lots of things that I do not need to know anymore. Slash, how, I wonder if I ever needed to know it. And Can you give some examples. Embryology. Well, sorry, what was that? Embryology. What, what's that called yeah. for the uninitiated embryology? What, what embryology. You... It's the um, it is uh, the science of kind of how um, the fetus or a baby uh, is formed, kind of the uh, the stages that it goes through before it actually looks like a, a small human uh it's incredibly complex and it involves lots of different cell types folding in on themselves um and it is you know just an absolute 
marvel of evolution. Uh, I don't know about you, Dan, but we had a fair few lectures on embryology in medical school, um, none of which have been useful uh, for my day-to-day -day clinical practice. Uh, Dan, did you do much embryology? Yeah, I mean, we uh, maybe. I don't, I don't really remember. I was probably hungover at the time, and, and frankly, I was probably sleeping through it. Um, but, you know, I'm, I'm never going to use it. And you say, you say it's a marvel. Oh, God, it's so boring to learn, at least. <laughs> it's just, you know, little blobs becoming bigger blobs, and it was just dull. And, yeah, I'm never using that ever. Was it easy even at that stage having, I guess, an idea about roughly maybe where you wanted to go to sort of say, yeah, this bit of med school is less relevant for me particularly, but might be relevant for, you know, somebody's going into the, I don't know what the, that, that side of um, medicine's called, gestation or something like um, But uh... Well, yeah, to, to an extent, sure. But I think realistically, I think the majority of medical students may have a preconceived idea of what kind of specialty they want to do and then they go into the job and then quite quickly find out actually that's not what they want to do so certainly in my own experience i wanted to be a surgeon when i was in med school and then um i, I did i started doing some sur sur surgery kind of you know surgical attachments did a bit of surgery watched a bit of surgery and i found it incredibly tedious and quickly realized that this idea in my head was was not what matched up with the reality what is that as in tedious because it's actually quite repetitive you're doing one type of operation a lot is that, is that what you mean or um yeah for other reasons yeah uh, absolutely so for me as a as a journalist I, I i get bored quite easily i want to make sure i'm seeing lots of new different things every single day um lots of variety whereas if from my opinion at least if you become a specialist in any 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 kind of specialty apart from a, f a few select ones um certainly if you become a let's say you become an orthopedic surgeon um you're probably going to subspecialize in that you're probably going to either be a hip surgeon or a hand surgeon or a foot surgeon and actually the amount of operations you're going to be doing is probably at the end of your game when you've made it to the top as it were and you're your consultant and you're super specialized you're probably going to only be doing a handful of operations handful. day in day out that's it I mean, I suppose as a, as a patient, you're probably like quite happy about that. You're like, yeah, I want my doctor to be an absolute expert in this one. I don't want him to be working or her to be working it out. Um, what about you, Tom? You're, you're obviously in a slightly more specialist area. Do, do you see some of that kind of um, repetitive, um, slightly duller side of, of, of your more specialist area at all? I do. Um, I think I'd agree with Dan there um, that certainly... Uh, in GP, you get it's a much you know you, you see a much broader range of presentations, um, and I would go even further to say that in every yeah in every specialty, people subspecialize to see an even smaller uh, number of um, number of presentations and do an even smaller number of operations. I've I've enjoyed the the specialization um, and. And I get a real satisfaction out of kind of learning some niche knowledge, which I don't think many other doctors uh, are going to know about. Um, and, you know, if I can use that knowledge to help my patients, um, yeah, it's, uh, I find it really, really re rewarding. 
So does your role, Tom, see you a lot more, um, you know, almost like doctor to doctor interactions? You're advising other doctors rather than you're actually speaking to the patients, whereas Dan would be classically speaking direct to patients most of the time. Yeah, so we'll, we'll definitely speak to patients uh, before, um, sometimes during, depending on, on what kind of anaesthetic you're giving, and then and then after the surgery. But we are, I think, some people might consider an anaesthetists the doctor's doctor, in that um, we, yeah, we'll kind of uh, we have a lot more interaction with other doctors uh, compared to patients. Um, anaesthetists are, are the doctors that are, are generally running uh, the intensive care units. Um, would you see that as like your? Um, would you see that having to affect your kind of approach to work? Like your? Would you, would you feel that because of that you've had to learn some different traits than maybe what Dan has done because you you work in that more advisory role because I, I can imagine you know if, if you're working as an, an advisor and stuff there's especially if you're slightly younger there's, there's always that ego thing you've got to deal with if you're advising a slightly more senior you know surgeon or something like that um you know has that affected how you've kind of developed your skills at all that you've, you're in that advice slightly more advisory role i'm not sure i'd, I'd call it an advisory role uh it, it, it's a it's a it's a i'm a part of a team um and as a as a team with um, the anaesthetists and the surgeons uh, and sometimes uh, the medics, we will try and come up with a plan that's best for the patient. Um, but it is uh, such an incredibly different set of skills that Dan will be using uh, in his day to day practice. Uh, you know, I think it is still super important to to be displaying qualities like empathy and uh, uh, showing a caring nature. Um, but uh, yeah, Dan, you, you must do that in a heck of a lot more than me, I would imagine. I mean, it's um, a little bit of loneliness to, you know, if you're a GP, you work on your own, you're having to make those decisions yourself. You haven't got a, not, it's not a comfort blanket, is it? But every, every, I think all humans like to kind of be able to bounce decisions. We we like working in groups, small groups, don't we? And and kind of working out the optimum solution. But as a GP, I guess you haven't got that team to lean on sometimes, um, which I can imagine can bring bring some of its own pressure. Yeah, I, it. I think I think it is true that that at the end of the day, I think I have to take a lot more responsibility. Because whilst I think often it is just me seeing that patient and me making that decision about that patient and that patient will go home and if I get it wrong, then actually he's out in the community and bad things can happen. So I do think I have to take a lot of responsibility. Um, whereas perhaps when I was a junior doctor working in the hospital, um, that, that responsibility is a bit more shared between between larger teams and also I suppose you're working under a consultant so I think I think this is the crux of it really I think there's a for me the qualities that you look for in a doctor is very different depending on what specialty they do there is obviously going to be a lot of overlap but actually I think between the different specialties because it is so different and what we do is so different there will be different qualities we need to look for and then 
it's, a, it's quite difficult to narrow, narrow it down because actually there's so many different specialties. And then the other part of it is actually, I certainly believe that the qualities you need to be as a junior doctor when you're training before you specialize, before you go into your niche and that's all you do, particularly when you're in your foundation years, that's just the first two years after you qualify. I really think the qualities you need to be able to do well there is very different from perhaps the qualities that might see you do very well as a consultant. So is that something like, as in, you know, you're in a slightly learning environment as, as, a, as you call it, an F1, a junior doctor. I, I'm going to guess uh, you've got to be a bit, being a, being a bit of a sponge for information, you know, uh, a, a diligent learner is really key. But there's, a, there's suddenly a transition when you're the one actually driving the ship and it's like, oh, no, I've actually got to make decisions myself here. Um, and those c- can sometimes not be the, you know, come from the same sort of skill bucket. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think you've nailed it on the head exactly. Um, so, quite. I don't. I don't know how. I don't know how many people know exactly what we do as foundation doctors in the first year and second year. But we will. Mo- most people will end up going through different specialties during your first two years, and every specialty is completely different, and you need lots of different knowledge, and you've never had experience of that specialty before. So for example, in my, in my, when I first started out as a foundation year doctor, my first job was in renal. So that, that's the kidneys and I'd never done kidneys before. And I only had four months there. And then after that four months, I moved swiftly on to pediatrics. So that's, that's children's medicine, completely different, never experienced that. And then four months after that, I moved on to ear, nose and throat, a surgical specialty. So completely different again. And so as a junior doctor, you're con- continuously moving every four months which is not a long time to a whole new world which you've never experienced and i think you need to have i think what's really important is adaptability and the ability to pick things up quickly and 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 i think that's really really important compared to for example you know when once you're a consultant perhaps you know you've been doing that single thing for many 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 years you probably don't need that much um, that ability to be able to, as a sponge, to soak things up super quickly. And, and I, you know, in the softer side of things, like I, I'm trying to think of that of, of you know times when when I've certainly moved through different teams, and you've they're not necessarily two ends of a spectrum, but there's a, there's probably an association with the the really kind of humble side of things and the kind of confident decision maker. Um, and I'm not saying that they're they're in a single um, kind of two D line, but I think they are slightly dissimilar and I, and I and there's an element of when you go into a new team you've got to start humble haven't you you've got to come in if you're if you come in there as mr mr big man into a new place when you're moving every few months you're, you're going to be haters and you're not going to you're not going to get on and you're probably not going to have a good learning attitude but i but i can imagine you could get into those traits of being almost too humble too kind of quiet too kind of um waiting for somebody to tell you what to do to be respectful and then it's a shock when suddenly, oh, you're the guy making the decisions. Um, I know from you know from my own experience of, of being in the military, that was a that was a bit of an interesting shock. You go through all your training and you're very much there to learn. Shut up and learn. It's not quite that extreme. And then suddenly you're put in, in charge of your first team, and it's like, oh shit, oh no, people are looking to me to actually make a call on this. And you, you know, you maybe have a bit of discomfort with that. Is it, would that ring true with you guys? That kind of experience? It's a it's a gradual process. Um, you start off with not much responsibility, um, uh, and you slowly take on more and more as you as you learn. 
I think the thing I found that is uh, most important, most important attribute for a doctor to have is, is just to be good under pressure. Uh, every single specialty is going to be un, uh, under a, a different kind of pressure, uh, and and you can have the you know the greatest knowledge, empathy, kindness in the world, but if you are cracking under pressure, uh, then you know things aren't going to be good and. Uh, I've, I've seen colleagues or senior colleagues crack uh, under the immense pressure that they're put under. Um, and it, you know, it's really not nice to see. Uh, it leads to, uh, it leads to kind of a breakdown in leadership. Uh, people lose confidence uh, in, in that person. Um, so yeah, I think, uh, and it's really interesting because we, we 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 spend in a lot of big organizations i can imagine you guys are similar and i'll, and I'll come on to this in a minute because i'm curious of of how you guys have been if you've ever been taught some of the softer skills or it's just been kind of implicit um but we teach a lot of the yeah those real what they call emotional intelligence you know debate whether that is you know to, to what extent that's the right term to use but those, those sort of softer skills of yeah being um you know, be, be, being self-aware of and being aware of other people's needs and things like that. But there is that fundamental of line of like, if you can't do your job, which I suppose for you guys is like part of that is, is perform under pressure. And I'd imagine a huge amount of like, have the knowledge. No, no one cares about the other stuff, you know? And if you've not got that baseline sorted first, you, you know, you're wasting your time with the softer skills. And I know if I look back at my career and I can observe people who've got it wrong, I think it's more often than not they've probably focused on that softer skills part of it without nailing the be good at your job first and then look to kind of you know inspire and lead people i don't know whether you guys have seen similar situations that that was what medical school was for me it was uh building a lot of soft skills um you know we had seminar after seminar on communication skills how to break bad news to patients um which uh you know it's got nothing to do with how the body works um which i think a lot of people might think what medical school is about you know learning physiology physiology and anatomy uh, but yeah real strong emphasis on on those soft skills and i think that the way that they justify doing that is that uh, a high proportion of complaints against doctors come from a um, a kind of patient feeling that the communication was bad? Um, so actually, I think uh, you know doctors can and, and do make mistakes if they own up to them, apologise, you know, explain why these things happened. Uh, in a in a good way uh, and that the patient can understand and can see that the you know the doctor is sorry that's going to reduce the number of complaints that people get um so yeah whether it's self-preservation or but I, I would i would add that uh, i think i actually personally think it's right that the you med, med school have a real focus on communication skills nowadays um, because frankly the amount of you know as you as you put it Andy hard facts um, 
the amount of knowledge that we learn in med school that I use on a day to day basis, I don't think is much. I actually don't think that I, I learned I learned the language, I learned the basics. I didn't learn how to do my day to day job until I got into the job. And actually, all those hard facts, as you put it, you know, all that that core knowledge that we need as a doctor, I think I learned ninety percent that on the job. And I think it's really difficult to try and teach that in medical school. Why is so, that? Do you think that's because um, people can't kind of like visualize them in the scenario where of which they'd be applying this stuff because they're so, they're just they've just seen school, they've not seen actual experience. Or do you think that it? it I, I think it's just. I, I just think it's one of those. I, I genuinely think it's one of those professions where, until you're doing it, until you're making those decisions, until you're doing it day in day out. You can learn the theory behind it, but until you're doing it, it's it's so abstract. It's it's not it's it's almost inapplicable. When I when I was in medical school, I found, you know, teaching sessions not that interesting, or I, I wasn't that engaged with them. Um, but then, as soon as I qualified, anytime anyone put out a, a teaching session. I was like, I really need to go. I actually really want to do learn this because it makes my life so much easier. The more I know, the the easier my job becomes. So so actually, suddenly my whole mindset shifted because it was suddenly became really important to know this knowledge. Whereas I think that importance is lost on you when you are a medical student because it's it's just such a it's a different world. Do you think there's a maturity factor? I know we've we've discussed on earlier podcasts about speaking about ourselves, you know, when we're a bit younger, around the kind of age that you, you guys, I'm sure, would have been going through med school. You know, you have that slight, I think, probably over-arrogance that I, I, I think quite a few young men sometimes have and that maybe you thought, oh, I, I know all this stuff, it's obvious. And then you matured a bit and thought, um, oh, God, no, actually, I, I could refine it. You know, I don't know everything. I don't know. I mean, I'm sure I personally had that arrogance, um, but you, the majority of medical students now are female. So I think at my university is 60% are female. And, and I certainly don't think the majority of medical students were, had that arrogance of thinking, you know, they, they knew it all. I think far from it. But I, 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 I just think that actually the decisions that you're having to deal with in a hospital or in medicine when you're working is quite different from the theory um, that it's just not that translatable. I think you learn the language. I think you understand generally what's going on. I don't think you really know how to put it in place until you're in the job and learning and doing. I think learning by doing is just so important in medicine. See one, do one, teach one is what we talk about. You need to learn how to do something say um some kind of procedure um i'll, I'll use an example of uh, a quite common procedure that the doctors carry out and that might be like taking blood so um you know if you want to take a medical student and who can't take blood uh, and your end goal is for them to take blood you use the well the old school way of doing it would be uh, you, you see one so the medical student watches one uh, you then do one uh, so they they you know the next patient they they take the blood and then uh, the whole idea is that they would then teach off teach the next person and through that teaching they kind of gain a better understanding of it and a, it's very crude but a, 
it does work there's something isn't there about when you're teaching someone a, t- a topic i think there's an element of social pressure isn't there As you don't want to look stupid so you're like you force yourself to really know it because you're like this person could ask me a question i look stupid um and maybe there's a way that when you lay it out to somebody else you lay it out really logically which is probably good for your own brain in like you know laying out the problem really logically that you probably would just oh yeah i got that in your head and actually it's a bit jumbled and you understand various concepts but they're not linked up very well yeah definitely um i I now teach university students in medicine and quite often um i've come away with a better understanding of of certain topics than than before Um, i'm curious though you dan um i when you sort of said that it, it can't be taught uh and I'm obviously um, I'm trivializing it a little bit. You said it can't be taught. It has to just be sort of learned on the job, which seems like a little bit of a defeatist attitude in terms of training. Like you think you can always make training better to make it replicate, you know, reality, make it kind of give people artificial experience and things like that. Are there ways that you think, although it would never be as good as experience, are there things they could introduce to med school to better prepare people on some of those, perhaps some of those softer skills that we were talking about earlier? I don't even think it's the softer skills that need need preparation. I think it's the I think it's the hard decision making that you know when you're on call. So normally in the hospital, it's quite different. So normally in hospital, when during the day, when you're especially when you're quite low down, when you're foundation doctor, when you're junior doctor, you've got lots of seniors all above you. They tell you what to do, and you just do it. You're like the grunt, as it were um there's very little kind of thought that needs to go into that process you kind of just are hands on the ground and you just do the job that changes drastically when you're on call where suddenly the hospital is skeleton staff there is not many people around you will still have a senior but maybe only one two if you're lucky and suddenly you're covering instead of you know maybe 10, 20 patients on the ward, you're covering suddenly half hospital, maybe the whole hospital. Do you, do you have any good stories of those kind of slight oh shit moments of like, oh, the call's on me. I'm, I'm the, you know, I'm the, I'm the guy here making the call. There's no one sort of sitting above me. Do you have any good little stories of that? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had some real, you know, brown, brown kind of brown boxes moments where so i think it was in my my first year as a foundation doctor it was one of my the first set of night night shifts i'd ever done and so it was my first it was either my first or the first couple of night shifts i've ever done um i was covering medicine so half the hospital um and this is that you know night time i had a, a senior above me called a registrar, but he was a locum registrar. And for, for those that don't know what locum means, it means basically someone who is just coming for that shift to fill in that that post, a bit like a, a mercenary, if you will. And um, they get paid. <laughs> I like that term, a mercenary. <laughs> we should start yeah. calling them mercenaries, Dad. Doctor, doctor of fortune. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so, so they get paid, you know, extra, extra mercenary money. Um, but they, they, they probably, it might be the first time ever in the hospital. They might not know how that system works. Um, and they, they don't know the team and everything anyway. So for for whatever reason, they turned up late. So they weren't at handover. So I'd never actually met them and it was, it wasn't a very good start. 
And then I got called to see an asthmatic patient, quite young, really struggling with asthma. It was a really bad flare up of it. Um, I'd already given all the treatment. I was, so I saw her, so I gave her all the treatments I could in terms of kind of inhalers and things like that. Um, but she wasn't really responding and she was getting a lot worse. And at that point, generally, you know, you need to call a senior. Um, but for whatever reason, I couldn't get hold of this senior because call the anaesthetist, you Dan. Well, well, I tried. So, so I, I tried. Firstly, I tried calling my my registrar. Um, for them, for whatever reason, they were late to the hospital, so they, they they weren't in post. There was no one to call. I called the other registrar on call, um, covering kind of admissions, and they they said like, ah, oh, you know, it's it's really busy down here. Can can you call the anaesthetist? <laughs> So and I was like, yeah, that's fine. I called the anaesthetist and the anaesthetist was like, uh, well, you know, I'm, I, I called the junior anaesthetist on first because I couldn't reach the senior anaesthetist and the junior anaesthetist goes, oh, I'm with my senior anaesthetist, but we're um, in the middle of a, a really, really poor patient. I think they were tubing them, which basically means putting a tube down their throat so they can artificially breathe that patient for them. And they were like, yeah. I understand your situation. It sounds like this patient's quite poorly, but we're we're stuck with this one. Have you tried calling your registrar? And then my response to that was, my registrar's not even in the hospital at the moment. I have no other senior. Mm-hmm. So so it was it was a really, really tricky situation. And so and, I had to time sensitive as well. Like you had to do something quickly. Very time sensitive, very time sensitive. So, you know, uh, in the in the end, I managed to get the other registrar to come and see them. And in the meantime, I'd already started some other extra treatments, some some steroids and things like that. But I, I like a bit yeah. of ketamine in this situation. <laughs> Is that for but, the horses or just <laughs> no for the patient? <laughs> for the patient. But, and um, so, yeah, go on. No, I was just, you know, so that, that's a you know, really sick patient. They're getting worse. You've tried all you can normally do in that situation. Normally, you need to escalate up to your seniors. But then for whatever reason, seniors aren't there. So, you know, that that's, that's a really hard situation. And, you know, I think I've had other similar ones where, you know, for whatever reason, your seniors aren't available and, um, like, a patient won't stop seizing and you've tried all the things you can try. Um and I guess so you can kind of console yourself later if you know that you doing something as someone who's fairly well trained is it might not be the the perfect solution, but it's better than nothing, isn't it? It's better than just letting. It is. You've got to be a swan in those situations. You've got to be a like swan. You, what do you mean by swan, Tom? You you you're calm on the surface. You know, you just sailing along, but underneath you are paddling like fuck. Um, and your mind is going at 100 miles an hour, but you have to, you have to be the swan. You have to maintain that, uh, just that calm, confident appearance. Call for help. You know, like that leadership. I mean, my best boss that I work for, you love the swan analogy. And I would always say to him, you know, how are you so, how are you so calm? And he's like, I'm not in reality. He's like, I just realized that if I get excited, everybody else gets excited just, you know, because we're sort of humans like that, aren't we? And that, do, and that generally does nothing for the problem. Um, uh, and, and I really try to take that on board as much as possible. It's just like, cool the emotions and uh, try and keep them under wraps. How, how about you, Tom? Did you have any moments where you were like, um, what, what was your sort of first moment of like, oh shit, I'm the guy making the call here um, and I've got to maybe deploy Swan? 
swan moments are fantastic with kids because they are so receptive and if you come across nervous that kid's going to be nervous and that parent's going to be nervous and oh you, nervous parents and nervous kids and nervous doctors are just bad combinations um had a it, it wasn't even a, a particularly bad or severe situation but um I was working a, an ENT job in nose and throat and a, a, a child was brought in who had put something up their nose um, and uh, it falls on me to, to get that thing out of their nose. Um, Do you know what the thing was? It was, uh, so, so... Am I spoiling the story by asking? <laughs> so my parent didn't know. Um, uh, this, kid, this kid's about two or three, so they've got a little bit of strength but not quite enough understanding to, you know, hold still um, and it essentially boils down to the parent holding the, the child as still as possible with me putting some instrument up their nose um, and uh, uh, in, in this situation I would use Yoda as a as a kind of mentor because he said uh, do or do not there is no try and so I know that you know, I've just got to get this out first time because this kid's not going to have something put up their nose twice. Um, so, you know, I reach up, kind of trying to pull this, whatever it is out of their nose, eventually pull it out. It is a, um, it's a piece of sponge, um, which, uh, you know, on first hearing, you wouldn't think it was that bad, but you want to know this. If you put a piece of sponge, um, in your body where it sits there at 37 degrees for, for two weeks. Uh, it, it gathers quite a lot of bacteria and pus. Uh, and it was the worst smelling thing I have ever smelled. Uh, and it genuinely, it, that, that smell stayed in my nose and in my head for days. Um, <laughs> it was just the what rankest. Did like? What did it look like? It was just this pussy bit of goo, basically. Um, but the reason the mum knew there was something up there was because this kid, uh, this kid's breath was smelling super bad. Mm. So she'd obviously been smelling it um, for kind of a few days and then eventually looked up his nose. Oh, yeah, I think there might be something up there. Um, yeah, used the swan, you know, listen to Yoda, all these things. And, and I, do, I do actually think that that is one trait that is so important in in when you're a junior doctor when you're not certain as to what you do because i think that is the hardest situations isn't it when actually you don't know what the right thing to do is but you're out of options to try and get advice and that the uncertainty is what causes kind of fear i i think and i think quite what's not quite often recognized or acknowledged that is actually quite an important trait is is courage for for as a doctor i think i think doctors have to be quite courageous in in making making choices and then but there is a flip side of that obviously is you don't want that courage to become arrogance and for you for you to start doing things outside your actual own skill set and making dangerous decisions but nor, nor do you want to be super timid. So even, you know, ne never putting yourself into uncomfortable situations where actually that's in those situations, that's where you learn the most, that's where you grow the most. 
that's where actually you how you progress and and I've personally met people who I feel never kind of put themselves into those situations and I and you know is that shirking responsibility quite probably or possibly they they slow down you know at a macro level lots of people like that will will slow down the system won't it and actually probably you know decrease medical care because everything's having to be referred everything's having to be checked you're burdening the resources more um yeah yeah absolutely as we talked about earlier there's that side of like somebody's got to make a medical somebody's got to make a call at some point haven't they i'd assume in most medical scenarios you don't know 100 percent this is what is going to be the the right you know here's the problem here's the solution nice green check check box there's an element of you're taking a, a, a an educated guess or not a guess an educated yeah. decision and that's quite a big like uh, we've discussed it in leadership things on the podcast before is that a key facet of leadership is is i think as you said i love how you said that you know that co- that confidence to do something but it's not just blind confidence and I, and I wonder if there's something in confidence where it's like confidence but also with the responsibility that goes with that you you're confident enough to make a decision but responsible enough to realize it's kind of it's on you um you know if something get, the, the the impacts of that is you, you have to take on yourself um um you know whether that's that could be emotionally just feeling bad about making the decision that maybe caused someone's health to decline or um or, or other kind of implications on the organization um the diamonds are made under pressure yeah <laughs> yeah well, that, i mean that's really one. Under pressure. um cool so i'll be really interested to to know you guys's perspective on we've talked about some of the mechanisms that med school has in, in process just naturally through a kind of like um you know sink or swim mentality when you're a junior doctor and you're forced to make some of these harder decisions and you guys mentioned earlier on that they also did some of this soft skills training it wasn't just about pure learning knowledge um but it it must go you know these things can always be improved and and it must go wrong at times and there's people who maybe struggle as um as young doctors and i wonder if you guys have got any reflections on what it is that goes wrong for people um as a young doctor and maybe some some ways that that the, the system could be improved or, or their attitudes could be improved to oh, fuck attitudes. That sounds arsehole. I'll cut something out there. The system could be improved to, um, you know, better, better prepare young people going into the profession. I, I think, I think the, being a doctor is tough. Being a junior doctor in particular, I think is really tough. And I think, I think some people don't recognize that and understand that before you become become a doctor when you apply because you apply when you're in sixth form and it's you know well a lot of people will apply when they're sixth form and it's so young we're, yeah we're uh, idiots we're like you're not even 18 sometimes are you when you're applying for this yeah. you're like 17 i'm like god i was an idiot back then and you're right because it's, yeah. it's a, a job that's got so much um it has an image in the popular mind and it's quite high status it's kind of almost glamorized by tv stuff isn't it um I can imagine you can get, yeah, maybe people going in for the wrong reasons. I, I think even if they do go in for the right reasons, I think some some people just aren't, I think toughness is is, is really needed. And, you know, I think in, in medicine nowadays, a key buzzword we, we get thrown around a lot is resilience. Resilience, you know, that's the answer to everything. But it, what does that mean? It basically just means, you know, toughness, isn't it? It's like when, the, when hard times get going, which they will do as a doctor, especially as a junior doctor, are you going to be able to cope? Are you going to crack? And, and I don't think when a lot of people go into, 
into medicine, they, they think about that. They, they think about, you know, can I cope with the demands that this might bring? You know, so lots, lots of doctors have mental health problems and lots of them are excellent. But I certainly have met some people, some doctors that have had mental health problems and because of their job, because it's that tough, it's made them their own mental health worse. And actually, I don't think that that profession that they're in is doing them any favors. In fact, I think it's exacerbating them. So I just think, I think that is, uh, is a real, I don't know, I think people don't think about when they're applying, can I cope? Is How tough is it? Do, do you see much friction between sort of peers? You know, the first part of your career, I can imagine there's a huge amount of peer learning. There's an element of peer leadership. Um, do you see there, there being much, com- or sorry, in your experiences, there being much, if you see much conflict between people at the same level, same, same junior doctors clashing over different approaches to the profession? I mean, I, I've certainly clashed with some of my peers about, about their attitude to, to work before. I, I don't know, have you, Tom? I don't clash with people. No. <laughs> I mean, that's that's a fascinating one, isn't it? Because you know, and there's a, there's that personality factor there, and different how that approaches it. Because um, you know, perhaps yeah, you Dan, you are more, you are naturally more confrontational, um, which can have ben- you know, absolutely can have benefits. And then maybe um, Tom is is much more. Um, what do they call it in in the in the five trait theory? Um, agreeableness. Tom's more agree- naturally more agreeable, and you Dan, maybe you're naturally more disagreeable maybe I'll, I'll, point... I'll work around things i don't know maybe uh, and I'll, I'll say that that completely uh, shatters the, the gp stereotype doesn't it <laughs> oh. but but um yeah so i, I certainly I, i've i particularly when i was a junior doctor i've i've disagreed with my and colleagues what is it what is it you over? so so for example um uh, i've 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 been a junior, being a junior doctor is tough and certain, certain elements of the job is harder than others. And when you work in a team, often you have to try and share out certain duties to each other or cover certain different wards. Perhaps one ward is a lot harder than another ward. And I've, I've, I've actually had that discussion with my colleagues where I felt, come on guys, like I'm, I'm volunteering to, to pick up this really difficult ward with all these difficult patients every single time. And you guys are just, you know, staying quiet and, and not, not, not doing your share. And, and their response to me was saying, well, you know, I, I'm not training to be, so this, in this job, this was a pediatrics, um, to kids and there's, it was super specialized because I was working in a big hospital. So there was, you know, a, a cancer kids ward, there was a kidney kids ward, there was like a brain kids wards and all these kids are really complex, really difficult to manage. And then there's the kind of the general kids wards where, where you're, you know, your sniffles and your coughs come in. And so, you know, I said to them, look, I'm, I'm, I'm going and working on these, these cancer wards, the brain wards, the kidney wards all the time. You guys seem to just be going on to the general wards. Like, can we share this out a bit? And they, they literally said to me like, look, I'm not going to be a kid doctor. I'm going to be whatever it is. Me going onto those wards, it ain't going to help my learning. Uh, for for my future for whatever I want to be, and I I I I get that it doesn't particularly help my learning. I don't need to know super specialized knowledge about you know brain problems in niche kids. But at the end of the day, I feel like actually the hard work should be shared around, and I get their reluctance, and it might be because I'm I'm more willing to do be put myself into uncomfortable situations. 
and and they're a bit more scared about it but that that's still not fair in my opinion i feel like actually you know you need to be go you, you need to everyone needs to shout out the hard stuff and actually being put in uncomfortable situations medicine i think is where you learn and grow the most so so i've certainly had arguments with my peers about about that i mean what, what do you think um does the, um i don't know if tom you've seen similar stuff and whether you think the system could be of how your train could be designed to maybe bring in some of those teamworky skills or have people kind of a bit more critically reflect on on how they're, they're kind of contributing as a, as, a, as a whole group rather than an individual um i don't, I don't know whether you, you have any thoughts on that tom um i think in response to dan you know some of these things maybe i avoid conflict because i don't even get into a conversation about them um and you know it's just a case of right you're you're covering that area i'm covering this area uh and that's the end of it um we do an insane amount of reflection as a as a profession um and we have to in order to progress through our careers we we have to obtain feedback from our colleagues uh, and from patients um so important to 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 improve yourself what have you had any if you look back on that all that reflective learning which is something i don't know about you guys i think if when i was younger and perhaps maybe the age you're going through medical school i thought was a bit maybe of a, a silly kind of concept as i've got older i think actually structured reflection can be awesomely valuable um i'd be interested to know you guys whether whether that reflective learning you feel has helped you and, and maybe if there are any areas that it's it's helped you improve in what what those were in i think uh, reflective practice can be useful i think the way it's enforced on a lot of people uh, can be quite detrimental i've certainly had bad experiences as a doctor where uh, i've reflected on it uh, on my own um and I feel what it's led to is almost rumination. You know, I think about it and I think about it and I think about it. Uh, and actually, you know, that that's not beneficial just to keep on thinking about it. Um, so reflection alone for me, don't find useful. Reflection, re reflecting with other people, um, talking through a problem, uh, I think can be useful. Um, and I, yeah, so, so I think that's where the benefit comes in, but yeah, reflecting alone personally don't find useful uh, certainly some hoops that i need to jump through just to get uh, just to progress the career dan you like reflecting i think uh, i agree with you i think you know we we have to do so many reflections as as a doctor to basically to jump through hoops reflection in of itself i think is actually quite useful depending on the type of learner you are so um i don't know if you've come across this but i think there's a there's, oh, I can't remember what it's called now, but there's a there's kind of four different types of learning. Um, and what, one of them is reflection, one of them is action, one of them is, uh, I think, kind of deeply uh, theorising about it and, and there's something else anyway. Um, I personally have, when I reflect over something and and I feel like, you know, I've, I've made a mistake or actually there's been a tough situation. What can I do about it next time? I, I think it does help me. But I don't think, as you say, enforced reflection where I just end up just writing basically bollocks just to fulfill a page, fulfill the amount of reflections I need. I don't think that's beneficial. 
yeah it, it's so hard to get things like that right those really softy softy things cause it can so easy just become a tick box exercise and everyone's just like oh how, how quickly can i get this done i'm already a busy person yeah. um, i'd never advocate this but uh you know you know as part of our portfolios you know you say you need to get 10 reflections you know you sit down the night before it's due and just kind of make stuff up um totally pointless exercise yeah yeah, is, yeah it's, it's, it's not something i've ever done theory, isn't it but like oh god the execution is I'm, I'm interested you guys mentioned that tom you were talking about kind of reflection with peers as in like giving each other you know strengths and weaknesses um things like that is, is that something that happens quite a lot j- during your training uh informally more than formally in my opinion um you chat to your you chat to your your, your doctor mates in the the coffee room um you tell them about something stupid you did uh you have a laugh about it uh, and you learn from it um and uh, and formally as well we we do have to do it so i think for for me it was kind of uh at least once a year you have to send off a um a feedback form to at least kind of 10 people of your choosing um of your colleagues and peers um which i think is useful I, i i wish it wasn't so uh well at the moment i choose who i send the feedback to right so if I want nice feedback, I send it to people who like me. And certainly I've had colleagues who I feel may may have needed improvement in certain areas, but I know they're never going to send that feedback back to me because I because they know I, I may not think that they're, they're the best docs in the world. So in, in some ways, I feel that I think it's really useful, actually, but I do wish it was made a bit less um, built in so I can I can kind of almost sway the results, you know? Yeah, you can game the system. We we called it in the army. We used to call it Slater Mate, where you'd have to fill out after the end of a bit of training. You'd have to review different people and give them. And uh, you're right. It's so if somebody's got quite a a personality that's open, um, you know, respectful of other people's views, it can be really really useful. But you get some people and they're just like, no, nope, not me. And I'll just take it as an affront, and it kind of almost causes causes fractions. Right? Should we conclude a bit? Um, so. I'm really interested to know, we, we've had a bit of a, a discussion in all sorts of different directions there, hopefully interesting for people, whether you guys have any really interesting reflections on comparing when you first approach medicine, your um, your opinions of what the traits and behaviours and perhaps education that made a good doctor um, versus what you've actually learnt. And then perhaps for, even from the public's perspective, what you think the public thinks makes a good doctor and actually in reality what does. Um, I'd love to hear your your kind of concluding thoughts. I think when you apply to medical school, you get given this list of traits which uh, a good applicant will have empathy, intelligence, scientific mind. Uh, In my opinion, nothing is untrainable. Um, And you can be rubbish at something, but with deliberate practice, you can get better at it. Uh, And that's from uh, physical skills, uh, like intubating a patient, down to the, the soft skills like breaking bad news. So uh, that's certainly one way in which I have changed and learnt um, throughout my career. And, and I think, I guess, what I think in terms of character traits, perhaps that 
you you need as a doctor i think there's uh, there's probably only two in my mind that are crucial one is that you care because if you care then you're not going to be lazy if you care for the patient you're going to work hard if you care you're going to learn i think it all stems from that if you don't care then actually you know you're not going to push yourself to improve or to work hard or any of these things but if you care then i think i think you you can learn and that that's your motivation and that'll drive you and then the other the other thing which i don't think i i really thought about when i applied is um is is you know resilience toughness call it what you want basically it's a hard job can you cope with it is it going to actually make your life rubbish is it going to really make your mental health terrible or even your physical health terrible if so maybe it's not the one for you um but so yeah i think you know you've got to be tough enough you've got to have enough resilience certainly the way the nhs is at the moment where it's really struggling and everyone's having to work super hard and do you care i think if you've got those things i think everyone else can be learned as tom said yeah no. so to, pr- pr- to prospective medical students have a look at your grades um uh, and think about what those grades could get you uh do you want to be a 38 year old up in the middle of the night um dealing with a sick child or do you want to be you know working for a bank making twice as much money uh well it's triple mate triple (laughs) yeah probably yeah that's that's a fascinating one isn't it and and so hard at that age to really make an educated choice um Perhaps it, you know, perhaps the simplest way is, is to kind of go with your gut. But I think you can inform your gut, can't you, by listening to stuff like this, actually hearing what is the reality of the job you're going into, because because you don't want to get stuck in fantasy land. And I love that you Dan, they, they, these um these final points about um uh fuck let me edit uh, I, I love that Dan those uh final two points a um about the sort of resilience but also the care which which is interesting. Because we, they might be traits that people might think that don't traditionally go together too well. As somebody who's quite resilient can be kind of quite callous um, and perhaps uncaring. So getting someone who has a bit of both, um, you know, uh, is is perhaps a slightly un- unusual combination. Um, but but obviously can be can be really critical to success in in, in that organisation. So hopefully, guys, you've you've really enjoyed the chat today. Um, something a little bit different. You've heard about a different part of um, the world, the world of being uh, a doctor in, in in the UK, and probably similar to a lot of other countries. I think we've had some really interesting chats. Where we've looked at the different aspects of it and how what your perception might be might be different to the reality. Uh, guys, I hope you've enjoyed your first time coming on a podcast. How was it, Andy? Thank you very much. Uh, my one, my final statement um, is that. From this doctor, uh, you will never regret going on a run. So I'll see you all at Park Run. <laughs> How many runs is it now? 250 plus, isn't it? 250 plus Park Runs. <laughs> <laughs> and th- thanks, Andy. Yeah, I, I, I personally feel like this podcast, has, uh, today's session has almost been like a in-group therapy session for me to get some stuff off my chest so uh no i've i've uh, i've i've left it feeling a bit happier and and certainly uh, enjoy the process now again maybe that's how they need to do reflection for young doctor training they need to force them all to go on podcasts so they can uh, discuss their feelings to the the world uh, at wide the world at large sorry um 
yeah thanks guys for coming on um i know it's a little bit um uh, uncomfortable first coming on to a podcast for the first time but i think you both did a great job and some really interesting topics there um we've got loads more coming up for you guys if you're enjoying the podcast so far and um, we're speaking to a couple of charities about some of the really interesting work that they do we've got a few more um sort of world politics uh uh, geopolitics topics to uh, discuss about we've got a few more topics on leadership and we've got a star mystery guest uh this is a proper a proper superstar who's going to be coming on the podcast soon um so something to look forward to again if you're enjoying the podcast please give us a like um give us a share um when we're really small in these early days you sharing us with your friends and families is absolutely critical for allowing us to grow um and we look forward to uh, chatting with you guys soon thanks Thank <laughs> you.